We'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders through the back. Aren't you glad of this rain? Get rid of your two-tone car with your pollen on it. I figured I should say something about the Carolina basketball game today, but I just thought too many opportunities to offend and or for pride. And so I just wanted to avoid both of those. Uh, So we're looking at the book of James this morning. It's one of the most uh, practical books. It provides instruction on how you should live. And it's that's why the the series is called, um, you know, Christianity at street level there. So often you can just get some theology, but then you need to take it to this next step. Well, okay, I, I like that. I believe it. I I want to believe it, whatever you may feel. But then how does it practically work out? And James is that kind of book. When you turn to James, it's just a book of Christian practice. How do you live as a Christian? And as a friend of mine leaves almost every Sunday, they say something like this. I feel like when we're in the book of James, I'm in a hammer factory. I'm just getting hammered on every single sermon. And I think that's the purpose of James. Uh, It's to hammer out things that don't need to be in your life, to hammer you into the the form or the image of Christ. And so James, being the very first pastor of the very first church in the New Testament, he understands that the people coming in are going to have some things that need to be worked on or worked out. And the same is the case for the 21st century church. So James is helping us be formed into the image of Christ as we are on display for the rest of the world. And so we're here at the end of chapter 2 this morning which most biblical scholars say is both the most theologically significant part of the book as well as the most controversial. And the reason it's most controversial is in verse 24. If you'd look look at that with me. James chapter 2, verse 24 says, You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James's statement here is controversial because it appears to directly contradict what the Apostle Paul says in other places in the Bible. For instance, Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Or Galatians 2.16, we know a person is not justified by works but through faith in Jesus Christ. So you hear that? James chapter 2 says very clearly, you see. In other words, this should, should be so obvious. I'm just pointing this out. You see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul, the apostle, saying, we know. This is, this is the obvious. This is Plain as we can make it. We, we just all know this. A person is not justified by works, but through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And this uh, paradox, this tension led Martin Luther to make this very famous statement about the book of James. In a word, St. John's Gospel and his first letter, St. Paul's letters, especially the ones to the Romans, Galatians, and, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's letter are the books shown to show, that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary for you to know about salvation. 
even if you were to never see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, James's letter is really an epistle of straw. Martin Luther, not ever known to couch his words. Compared to these others, it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. And so Luther sensed this tension for other reasons, but also this reason that he's somebody who really was forwarding justification by faith alone. And then he runs into the book of James and he goes, "Uh oh, what do I do with chapter two, verse 24? Because it sure sounds like James is saying the very opposite of it. And so we can appreciate that frustration. And so we ask ourselves, well, what what do we do when we come across a situation like this? How do we handle this tension? And this isn't the only place in the Bible you have this kind of tension. And you could come across this situation. You could just kind of throw your hands up in the air. You could say, oh, see, there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. Here's one. Let's just kind of shut things down early today. Let's just close down the church because, you know, we can't trust what the Bible has to say. And some people handle it that way. But I I think these paradoxes, and we're going to see a couple of others here, are really meant to help you think. They're, They're meant to help you wake up from some sort of monotone reading of the Bible, and you come across this and you go, whoa, oh, hold on. This sounds a lot different than what I just read. So your mind is engaged and you're asking these kinds of questions. Well, where did this come from? Could it be true? Is it a contradiction? And I think they're purposefully planted in the Bible. Let me show you a couple of others. 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Okay, that's not, this is not rocket science. Paul is just coming and saying, you know, as far as evil, let's just not deal with evil. Just don't know anything about it. You can be an infant. But in your thinking, you got to be mature. We don't want childlike thinking. you got to grow up. Got that? Got it. Clear. Thank you, Paul. Understand. Jesus, Luke 10, 21. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, these eternal truths from the wise and understanding and instead have revealed them to little children. Okay, so it just sounds like here that Jesus is saying, you know, you don't want to be wise and understanding. You want to be like little children. And Paul is saying, hey, you want to be not like little children. You want to be mature in your thinking. So which way is it? Should we be mature in our thinking or should we not be mature in our thinking? Is it by faith alone or is it by works and faith alone? Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, which is really the easiest place to look at and see this tension. Solomon, uh, perhaps the wisest man ever to live, writes several of the Proverbs and he writes this one. 26, 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. In other words, when you're arguing with a fool, once you enter in the argument, guess what you are? A fool. So, you know, when you argue, when you just conclude this person's a fool, just mm, zip it up. You're not going to convince him. You might as well just move on. That's, that's pretty clear. That's pretty helpful. I find that very helpful sometimes when I'm talking to people. Not any of you, just other people in my life. 
Okay, that's 26.4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Verse 5, the very next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly. <laughs> Did Solomon, like, put his pen down in verse 4 and then take, like, a week break? And then come back, and he just failed to think, well, what did I just say? And I, well, I got, this sounds good, verse 5. I mean, was he just not clued in that, that what he just said was opposite of, of what he was saying now? And the answer, of course, is no. See, the, the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. So it gives wisdom, but you also have to use wisdom to apply it. So there could be situations that you're talking to a fool and you just say, you know, best not to answer this person. Not going to go anywhere. Or you could be in a situation and say, you know what, this fool's starting to lead a lot of people astray. And if somebody doesn't speak up, he or she might lead other people astray. So I'm going to have to answer this fool. Does that make sense? It's not complicated. And James is basically like the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. It's very hard to preach through because it's mostly just sayings, sayings of wisdom. How do you apply this in your life? And so when we get to James chapter 2, we find this tension. We find this paradox. And we're asking ourselves, well, how do we apply wisdom to verse 24, given what we know about what Paul says in other places in the Bible? And the first thing I would say is we know that James wouldn't say, People are saved by faith plus works. We know that. We know James wouldn't say people are saved by faith plus works. And then one of the reasons we know it is if you turn to Acts chapter 15, you would see the very first church council was about this very issue. People were coming in to the church and they weren't Jewish people. They weren't following the law. And People were saying, hey, when you come in, that's great. You got to have the law. You got to start. You got to have this stuff with you if you're really going to be saved. Because how do we know? I mean, so you got to have works and you got to have faith. And Peter is there. Paul and Barnabas is there. And James is at this council. And James is the head of the whole council. So several people speak. And Peter says this when he speaks. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that everyone is saved. You are saved and you and I are saved by grace, not by works. Paul and Barnabas stand up after Peter and say the exact same thing. And then James, as the leader of this New Testament church, as the leader over all these people, he says, now we all agree, don't we? And he writes a letter. We're letting everyone know, if you're going to be saved, you're just going to be saved by grace alone, not by works. So we know James wouldn't be contradicting himself. And so we go back and say, well, okay, he's not contradicting himself. So, so what does he mean when he says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Well, you can imagine there's quite a bit of commentary if you want to read it at this particular point. But I think the most helpful way to think through this is to get the right definition of justification. Because I think the argument hinges on how you define the word justification. And justification in the New Testament and justification now can have two different meanings. One of the meanings is to make yourself right. That's the way Paul uses it. 
we know that no one can make themselves right to God by works. Let's just say amen to that. Amen. That's great news. That's the best news I could say. We, this is what we know. You cannot make yourself right. Good. Because, you know, when I try, I blow it even in my effort to try. And so I'm just glad to hear that I am not going to be justified. I don't have to make myself right through these works. And so Paul's getting it right. But there's another definition for justification, and that means to prove yourself or to demonstrate something. And that's the way James uses the, the word in verse 24. If uh, Dee Dee Vincent, our accountant, comes to me, and she does every month, and she says in a very nice way, Paul, it's time to justify your expenses. Well, she didn't actually use that language. But that's what she's saying. She's saying, hey, once a month, Paul, you, you said you would like $150 back this month for mileage or food or books or whatever. Fine. Was she going to take my word for it? Sure, I'm the pastor, right? But who's not going to take my word for it? The IRS is not going to take my word for it. What do they want? Proof. And what is that proof? It's some kind of receipt to say, yes, I went out and ate a meal with this person and it cost me $10. Or I bought this book and it cost me $10. I need some kind of demonstration or I need some kind of proof. And really, James is saying that same thing. People all day long who call themselves Christians can say whatever they want. But James, as their pastor, is saying, that's great. I mean, that's wonderful. I don't want to deny what you say, but I've got to see proof. I've got to see something demonstrated in your faith that will help me know that it's a living faith and not, as he says in the text, something that's dead See, it's amazing to me that here you have the very first church. You have the half-brother of Jesus who's the pastor. And he's coming into the church and he's saying, I see this as a problem. People are saying they're Christians, but they're not acting like it. Well, that's a problem in the 21st century church. So, so we need to lean in and listen to what James has to say to us in this particular text one theologian tries to put this idea together by this quote we are saved by faith alone but we are not saved by faith that remains alone okay so that's that's the the introduction to really the sermon it's a long one not the sermon the introduction and so we want to just look at the, the rest of these verses, 15 through 25, and just see how James piles up one illustration after another. He's just trying to make sure you get it. So if you say, hey, I need some help, give me an illustration, you give an illustration. If you give four illustrations, then this isn't one you really need to get. You need to make sure you're clued in on this. Verse 15 and 16, he gives an illustration about a poor brother and sister. Verse 19, he gives this very provocative statement about what demons believe. Verse 21, he talks about Abraham. And then in verse 25, he talks about a prostitute named Rahab. And then you'll notice after each single illustration, he gives basically a conclusion 
And it's the same conclusion. Verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, you foolish man, you do, not, do you not want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. All right, so let's look at these four illustrations and let's group them together. The first two, the poor brother and sister and the, and the uh, provocative statement about demons. And then we'll look just very briefly at Abraham and Rahab. Okay, so Paul, Tim, I'm sorry, Paul, Timothy, James is giving an illustration here, verse 15, and it's very easy, very straightforward, something that's not hard for us to follow. If a poor person comes to you and is lacking something, and he says it's a brother or sister, this is somebody in the church comes to you today, I'm lacking something, and you with, with all your heart, you say, bless you. Be on your way. What is that? That's nothing. That's a waste of oxygen. It, you know, it doesn't matter what you say right then. I, it's, I need some, some action. I need something tangible. And so James is helping us see that in the same way, verse 17, if you have faith, if you have just words by themselves, you know, it doesn't matter how heartfelt your words are. It doesn't matter how well-informed your words are. It matters if you have some action behind your words. And if you don't have that action, then it's a waste. It's, it's like it's dead. And I love how James just gives very concrete conclusions. So also, verse 17 Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works. Faith all by itself. Great knowledge. Great heartfelt sentiment. Is it while well, you're struggling? He doesn't say that. What does he say? It's dead. No wiggle room. No, well, hey, I've got really a heartfelt, emotional, knowledge-based word. So what, James is saying. That's just oxygen that's adding to green, the greenhouse effect. That's all it is. It's, it's worthless. It's not doing anything. It's, it's dead in James's eyes. And so he moves on and he's already anticipating. He's delivering this sermon and he's already anticipating. What kind of kickback am I going to get on this? You ever have this happen to you? You don't do it probably from a pulpit very often, but you go into a conversation and it's kind of a tough conversation. What do you do? You think, what is the other person going to say? Right? And then you think, well, they're going to say this. And so when they say this, I'm going to say this back. This is really great if you're married. It's really helpful that you just cut your wife off saying, I knew you were going to say this. And you just go ahead and drill her with the truth. That is just so bringing people together. It's amazing. I really would encourage, not encourage that. All right, so James, he's the pastor. He's getting up here. He's going to say this. He knows he's going to say it. And he just can smell, let's just say, old Paul Phillips out there in the crowd. And he just, he's had enough conversations with Paul that he knows when he says this, Paul's going to find him right up near the donut place. And he's going to say, well, Pastor James, I just want you to know, what, wow, what a wonderful sermon. Everybody's going to say that first, and then it's going to be comma, but. So I've clued in, James, wow, what a wonderful sermon, comma. But, you know, some people, 
They have the gift of faith. And then some people, they just have the gift of works. And what would James say to that? And he tells you right here in this text. So you, you would say that, and I would say back to you, well, show me your faith apart from your works. How would you show somebody your faith if you weren't going to provide a work? How would you do that? You would provide a word. You would just say, this is what I know. You would recite the Nicene Creed. You would recite the Apostles' Creed. You would recite the Lord's Prayer. You would recite John 3.16. You would recite something. You would say, hey, I know these truths. That's how I know that I'm saved. I, I have this information. And James would then look back to you and say, great, that qualifies you to be a demon. What? I mean, imagine this conversation. You're overhearing it, and it's me and someone else. You're not quite hearing it, but the person gives a lot of great orthodox information. And I look back, and you just hear me say, you now qualify to be a demon. What? You'd be terrified. And that's what James is saying. Look, you can know all the information. You can have the creed. You can really have heartfelt, meaningful information. And if that's all you have, then that just qualifies you to have the same knowledge base as a demon. You believe, verse 19, this is James still arguing back, you believe that God is one, right? You believe that, right? He's anticipating, yes, because in Deuteronomy 6, that's what it says. That's why one of the most famous Jewish sayings that a Jewish person waking up would say, uh, Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, we believe that the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. So James is picking off like the, the preeminent piece of doctrine. You cannot believe in God if you don't believe this one thing. It might be us taking, you know, the, the, the statement by Peter saying, uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's, that's like the preeminent Christian statement. And James is taking the preeminent statement, hey, you believe that the Lord your God is one. Right, right, okay. All right, well, so do the demons. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon about just this one verse. This is what he says. The devils believe that there is one God, that he is holy, that he is a sin-hating God, and that he is a God of truth. The devil has undoubtedly a degree, greater degree of religious knowledge in the divine things, having been educated in the best divinity school in the universe the heaven of heavens. So whatever clear notions a man may have about the, about the attributes of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of the two covenants, the economy of the persons of the Trinity, if he can discourse ever so excellently about the offices of Christ, that the way of salvation by him, if he can, if by the nature of conversion and the operations of the Holy Spirit, if he has more knowledge of this sort than hundreds of true saints, Yet all of this is no certain evidence of any degree of saving grace in the heart. He may very, be very confident of the truth of Christianity, yet in this he goes nothing beyond the devil.
Wow. You see, you see what James is saying? The, the devil himself has some great knowledge of God. And the devil knows that the Lord your God, he is one. He's definitely sure about that. But what does he not? He doesn't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. That's what the devil does not do. He has all kinds of knowledge. His knowledge greatly surpasses your knowledge. Because he's seen it in a way that you and I haven't seen. But what does he fail to do? He fails to step forward and say, I'm loving the Lord. And when I'm loving the Lord, what else am I doing? I'm loving my neighbor as myself. And so just knowledge is is not enough. Knowledge is great. Knowledge is wonderful. But if all you're saying is, hey, I have this belief, that's not enough. That's a big problem in the 21st century church. It could be a big problem at Christ Community Church, a church that lifts high knowledge. I got the right information. I got it down. I got it in the little package. I can give it to you. That's great. But that's just qualification to be a demon. You've got to have some proof. You've got to have some demonstration. I used this illustration, it's a real-life illustration, maybe a couple of years ago, that you may remember. I was talking to a man who was dying. I didn't know him until he had contracted a disease that was going to very quickly kill him. And the only reason I was talking to him is he came to this church one time. I didn't know the person. But he had a niece who said, would you come and talk to him because he came to your church. So I went and talked to him, and I talked to him a number of different times. And as far as I could tell in his life from what he had said, and also in the little bit that I knew of him, he was not a Christian. I mean, I can't tell, but I'm just trying to use wisdom. And it just didn't appear as if he had any proof. That's all I could say. And so he died. And they actually asked me to do the funeral. And several weeks after the funeral, the niece calls me back. And she says, Pastor Phillips, I want you to know that in digging through his stuff in his house, I found this old little vacation Bible school booklet. And it had like a prayer of faith. And somebody had said, Joe prayed the prayer of faith on this day. And so then she said, my heart is at peace. Is your, is your heart at peace? Because you found something when the person was six or seven, that they said? I mean, I don't know. I'm not the person who makes that call. I'm so glad. But I can tell you my heart wasn't at peace. Why? Not because he's justified by his works, but he gives some evidence that he really has that faith, and he had none, none of that proof. He might have had all of the right knowledge He might have been able to recite all kinds of things that I could not recite. But those things all by themselves, James is telling us, hey, that's not enough. The next two examples are historical examples, Abraham and Rahab. 
And James brings up these two people that really are at the extremes. Abraham, our father, he says, the, the most celebrated ancestor for the Jewish people. And then he goes to the other end, Rahab, a prostitute. And there, there's a whole sermon here on this text on Abraham, which I did a couple of months ago, so I won't repeat it. But I just want us to look at verse 22. He, he offered up his son, Isaac. And then notice it says, and his faith was completed by his works. What an unusual phrase. His faith was completed by his works. And when you, you look that up and you dig into that word completed, the, the idea is that your faith produces a, a fruit. And so think if you planted an apple tree. What would you want at the end of the season? You'd want an apple. This, don't be fooled. This isn't really hard. And if you got to the end of the season and there was no apple, there are really only a couple options. You planted a pine tree, and you're not ever going to get an apple from a pine tree. You thought it was an apple tree, but by golly, it's a pine. And you're going to get pine cones, but you can't eat a pine cone. So maybe it's just the wrong tree. Or maybe you have a defective tree in some way. It looks like an apple tree. Maybe it is an apple tree, but it's not going to grow any fruit. And so what's going to happen if it doesn't produce fruit? You can cut it down. James is saying the same thing John the Baptist says to the Jewish people. You say, listen to this. You say, this is what you say, you religious people. You say, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So Abraham's faith was completed it was demonstrated it produced a fruit and so then you said yes it's true about abraham that's all i can do is i can look on the proof i can look on the demonstration and so james is bringing up this great father saying look at abraham he's a great model and in case you'd say well i'm just not like abraham i got all kinds of other issues i couldn't possibly com be compared to the the greatest Religious figure of our group. Okay. How about a prostitute? You see, I think his choices are intentional. Because you could just say, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not in the varsity. I'm not on the five-star squad. Well, okay. How about a prostitute? Can you demonstrate faith like that? One commentator says, anyone is capable of acting on his faith or her faith, whether patriot, patriarch, or prostitute. And Rahab, you can read about it in Joshua. She, she hides the spies, and then she gives them a, a way out. She demonstrates. She says she has a faith in this, this group of people's God, but then they're looking for proof. They're looking for some demonstration, and she shows the demonstration, and James says, see, then you, you know she has faith because she has demonstrated it. 
Let me conclude just by saying two more things. I think what James is trying to do in these verses are really just two things. He's trying to, to give us a warning. And I'm trying to give you the same warning this morning. Because you might be a person who you've been in church all your life. You know the songs. You know the creed. You can say the prayer. If we get into a dialogue, I leave going, wow, that person's pretty smart. And you could be dead. That's possible. And James, as a pastor, saying, I don't want you to be dead. I don't want anyone here to be dead. I don't want anybody here to be fooled into thinking, yeah, I, I just got that litur- liturgy down. I made sure that was in my mind. Isn't that enough? No, that's not enough. I, I prayed a particular prayer. I, I said these words. Is that good enough? That's not good enough. Don't be fooled. Be warned. But I think most of the passage is meant to be encouraging. Because so often you say, I don't, you ever feel, am I really a Christian? I mean, golly, some of the things I think and even some of the things I still do, am I, am I really a Christian? And I, maybe I need to give my own self some proof. And he's saying, yes. Yes, look, it's like these people. And notice what's common about all these people. They're people who are willing to take risks for other people. They're willing to get involved with a poor person's life. They're willing to sacrifice the thing they find most precious. They're willing to take a risk and be killed by their own people by hiding somebody else. You see what's common? Common to a person who has living faith is they take real risks. With their faith. And almost always that real risk is I step into the life of someone else and I demonstrate my faith. It doesn't save me. Sarah Smith is not saved because she's going to Romania. Nobody here believes that. But what we do believe is she proves it, does she not? That's what we're talking about. And that's happening in many of your lives. And I'm personally so encouraged by it. Some of you get up and say, you know, 40 weeks, almost 40 weeks in a row, I'm going to get up and I'm going to teach the three-year-olds or the four-year-olds. I don't feel like I'm a great middle school leader, but I'm going to come every Wednesday night and I'm going to be a middle school leader. I don't know that I'm as smart as the pastor or smart as other small group leaders, but I'm willing to have a small group. I'm willing to lead that small group. I'm willing to serve as a deacon. I'm willing to serve as an elder. I'm willing to serve as a nursery coordinator. I'm willing to go to China. I'm willing to go to Romania. I'm I'm, going to step forward. Not to say that saves me. It's just a demonstration. And so I want to ask you today, what, what proof do you have? You're not going to pull it out when you get to heaven. Here's my proof card. What are you going to pull out when you get to heaven? This is it. But if this is it, man, you're going to have so much more. And if you don't, then you want to ask yourself, do I have this? Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, so thankful for this text because it is so easy for me to get off track. And I need the hammer of the Word of God to help me see that my faith is dead if it's just informational. If, if I have all the right doctrines, if I can win in every argument, that doesn't qualify. We, we believe that the Lord, you are one. And we are loving you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And we are demonstrating it by our risks and our love for other people. I pray, Lord, that Christ Community Church would be a place where people would take risks with their faith. That, that this would be known as a place that you couldn't sit very long safely before you were asked to take a risk. Whether that's Romania, whether that's the nursery, whether that's Mary C. Williams, whether that's taking a risk by being a worship leader, whatever it may be, Lord, let no one here sit idly by and think that just because they can say things, that that's good enough. Let them be sure of their salvation. Let them be working out their salvation, as Paul says, by a demonstration of their faith out on the street. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.